understand that that special was upon request. I sure do thank you for that request. It's so beautiful. And actually, it's a wonderful introduction to the message this morning. I can't even express the strength of my desire to have Christ. Give me Christ or else I die. To know Him. I titled the message this morning, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? Psalm 73 that Jonathan just read for us. In verse 24, David says, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Now David is asking, What hope do I have of salvation other than the Lord? Who else would forgive my sin? So that I can go be with the Lord. Who else can put my sin away. Make me holy so I'm fit. To go to heaven. Who else could bring me into heaven. He says here. and He's confident of this. At the end of verse 24. He said afterward you'll receive me to glory. Well who else would do that for me. Who else would receive me into glory. And even though I know the Lord. And I trust the Lord. Who else would put up with all my weak faith. You know, here, you know, David says, whom have I in heaven but thee? But earlier in the chapter, David found himself envious of the wicked. They go through life not knowing Christ, not trusting the Lord. And David says, looks like it worked out pretty good for him. You know, they don't have all the troubles and all the trials and all the difficulties that I have. David says, it looks to me like I've washed my hands in vain. I've trusted the Lord. In vain. Now if you're a believer. You cannot find it in your heart. To be hard on David. For putting those words. Pinning those words can you. Every believer can identify. With weak faith. We're all we're so ashamed of it. We're ashamed of our weak faith. But we understand. That believers have that as long. And will as long as we're in this flesh. And David tells us. Only the Lord would forgive that kind of weak faith. Only the Lord would put up with that. He says in verse 21, Thus my heart was grieved. I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, so ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holding me by my right hand. Nevertheless, you've not let go of me. You've not cast me out. Now who else would do that for me? Who else but but the Lord? He's the only one. And in spite of our sin, in spite of our weak faith, the Lord is still for his people. The same way David says here, who, who else have I in heaven but thee? Who else is for me in heaven? Well, the Lord's still with his people. He's for his people. The same way he was for David of old. And this morning, I want to give you six blessings that you have. If Christ is for you in heaven. First look at Romans chapter 8. If Christ is for you in heaven. Then your soul can never perish. 
Never. Romans 8, verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The Lord is for his people so strongly, nothing can ever take them away from him. Nothing. If the Lord be for us, Paul says, who can be against us? <laughs> no one and no thing. Now, they'll be against us, but they can never prosper if the Lord is for me. If Almighty God has called you, no one can uncall you. If Christ has called you to himself, nobody can ever call you away from him. If God has justified you, you can never be charged with any sin. Because if God has justified you, you don't have any sin. If Almighty God has purposed to glorify you, nothing can stop God from doing it. Because he always accomplishes his will. No enemy will ever prosper against you if God is for you. Well, what about just me, myself? Can I be left with nothing? Can I be left without anything that I need to stand before God? Not if God is for you, you won't. Verse 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God is for you, he has freely given you all things in Christ. Everything that you need to stand in his presence. If Christ died for me, he purchased everything that I need by the blood of his sacrifice. Everything God requires of me, Christ purchased it by his death upon the cross. If Christ died for me, I'm justified. He made me righteous and I must be called. I must be kept. I must ultimately be glorified. I must be given everything that God requires of me. And if God's for me, he'll give it all to me freely. Well, how about my sin? My sin is great. Even after the Lord's revealed himself to me, my sin is so great. Will I ever be damned for my sin? Can I ever do something bad enough that God will, God will cast me out anyway? Not if God's for me, he won't. Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justified. If Christ was made sin for me, and he took my sin into his own body upon the tree, then my sin is gone. Christ has already been punished as the substitute for my sin. If Christ died for me, the debt's paid. His blood has washed me white as snow. The blood of Christ made the sin of his people to not even exist. That's what justified means. Justified does not mean just as if I'd never sinned. Justified means I have never sinned. I have no sin because the blood of Christ put it away. Now, if Christ died for me, there's no sin that even God could charge me with because he put that sin away. Well, what about God's justice? 
I know what I deserve for my sin. That makes me full of fear, doesn't you? Will God's justice ever get me? Not if God is for you, it won't. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. If Christ was condemned for my sin, God's justice will never condemn me for it too. Because that wouldn't be just. Now God's always just. Isn't that right? He's always just. He's always holy. Well, it would be unjust for him to punish his son for my sin then punish me for the same sin. That would be unjust. And I know that the sacrifice of Christ put his sin, the sin of his people away. You know how I know that? After Christ died, he rose again from the grave. See, it was sin that required his death, but he put that sin away. And where there is no sin, there can be no death. He rose from the grave because that sin charged to him is gone. So nobody can condemn me because he put my sin away. Now, my own heart is going to condemn me for my sin. That's what my conscience does. My conscience tells me, you did wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have thought that. You did wrong. And I have to say with David, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge it. I hate my sin. I wish I'd never sin again. I hate it. But when I look to Christ and I trust Him, my conscience is clear. My conscience is quiet because Christ put my sin away. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, He's still going to give me lots of trouble. He's still going to make lots of accusations against me. And you know what? Every one of those accusations is true. I committed every sin. There's not one sin I can say, I didn't do that. But I don't have to fear ever being condemned for my sin. Not as long as God is for me. Because if God is for me, Christ is making intercession for me. How does Christ make intercession then for his people? By pleading the blood of his sacrifice. And if he pleads his blood. Then I'll never be condemned. Never. It's just like the blood. On the doorpost on that night of the Passover. Remember God said I'm going to pass through Egypt this night. And if I see, when I see the blood I'll pass over thee. Well the blood on that door meant. There's already been death in this home tonight. The lamb died. The blood has been applied. There's no need for another death. Justice has already been satisfied. That's what the blood of Christ says for his people. Justice has been satisfied. Christ died to satisfy God's justice. There's no reason that God would ever find to condemn anyone who's under the blood of Christ. Because the blood atoned for that sin. Well, all right. How about the things of this life? events and circumstances come up, can something ever come up in this creation that can make me lose my salvation? All of it's against God. Can anything come up that would make me lose my salvation? What if I respond badly when God sends me trials, trouble, persecution, and pain? What if I respond badly? Huh? What if I become full of fear and deny even know the Lord like Peter did? Can something happen that will make me unfit for heaven? Can it? Not if God's for me, it can't. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No, none of these things will ever separate me from God. None of these things will ever make me unfit for heaven because God is working all these things, death and life and angels and principalities and powers and things present and things to come, all the heights, all the depths, all the other creatures. God's working all those things together for good, just like we just sung. He's working those things together for good. To them that love God, to them are the called according to his purpose. Now that is a great assurance for every believer since Christ is in heaven for us. Nothing will keep me from going to be with him. All right, number two, look back at John chapter 14. In John 14, the Savior is alone with his disciples and he's telling them some of the things that are getting ready to happen. He's told his disciples, one of them, one of those 12 is going to betray him. And then he told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. Can you imagine hearing that? I mean, we read this. I mean, this this happened to these men. These men, they loved the Lord. They loved Him. They've been with Him for three and a half years. They, and now He tells them, one of you is going to betray me to be crucified. And Peter, the mouthpiece for them all, you're going to deny me? Can you imagine how this broke their heart? How this, the stress and the worry this put on them? Well, immediately after he told them that, look what our, the Savior told him in, in uh, chapter 14 of John, verse 1. Now let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Now the Savior told him, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'm going to go to prepare people for the place and a place for the people. I'm going to do that by going to the cross. Now I'm going to be betrayed, but I'm going to go willingly. I'm going to go willingly to the cross and be the sacrifice for the sin of my people. You see, the Savior prepared his people for the place by shedding his precious blood and washing his people white as snow. He made them fit to be there because he put their sin away. That's what Paul meant in Colossians 1 verse 12 when he said, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet. He's made us fit. He's made us qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The blood of Christ made you fit, made you qualified to lay down this body in death and enter immediately into the presence of the Savior. Immediately. By his sacrifice, Christ made all of his people 
qualified for heaven. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. For He, God the Father, hath made Him, God the Son, to be sin for us. Him that knew no sin, that we might be made what? The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God in Him. Now if you've been made the righteousness of God, you're fit. You're qualified for heaven. I know, I know we don't see that in our experience and in our flesh. Because in our flesh it's not so. But in the new man it's so, isn't it? Don't ever let that trouble you. That you, that he won't, the Savior won't take you straight into his presence. He made you fit to go there. And the Savior told his hurting, fearful disciples, now I'm going to prepare a place for you. I love that he said that. He didn't just say, I'm going to repair a place. Gary said it for you. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's a dwelling place. This mansion doesn't, it doesn't mean a great big mansion and it means a dwelling place. There is a dwelling place in heaven for every last one of God's elect. And I know I know you're full of doubts and fears now. I know. And if you're not full of doubts and fears now, you're going to be right soon. And even though all those doubts and fears come upon you, the Savior says, I will have a place in heaven for you when I bring you there. I will. I promise you that. It's like going to a big fancy reception. And you ever been in one of those places and they have seating assigned, you know, and you walk around all the tables, you know, and there's all the silverware and the, the napkins and the plates and the centerpieces and the flowers and everything's so beautiful and, and fancy. And I feel kind of like, you know, hillbilly like me really don't belong here. Maybe they got me a, a spot out there in the kitchen or out there in the back. And I find a table that's got my name on it. A place reserved. They, they, they had a place reserved for me. That's what heaven's going to be like for God's people. There's a place reserved specifically for you. The Savior went and prepared a place for you. <laughs> and you know what? The Savior said, until it comes time for me to call you there, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to give you a comforter. Look down at verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you homeless orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit. Comforts God's people. And you know how he does it? By always showing us Christ. By always pointing us to Christ and reminding us of him. And the Savior said, I'll send you that comforter. He'll be with you till I come to get you. Don't ever forget this. I'm coming to get you. He said in the book of Revelation, behold, I come quickly. Quickly. All right, number three. If the Lord is for you in heaven, 
You have an advocate in heaven itself at the right hand of God. Now I've already mentioned Christ our mediator. He's in heaven. He's making intercession for his people. And we love to think about that. Don't, don't you love to think about Christ himself? Jesus Christ, a man is in glory, making intercession for his people. I love to think about that. John said in 1 John 2 verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if, and you know that should be translated when, when any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And our advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. Now let me ask you, Jesus Christ the righteous, if he's making intercession for you, how comforting should that be to your heart? Well, it all depends on how effective the intercession of Christ is, doesn't it? However effective that is, that, that's how comforting it should be to my heart. Well, will Christ's intercession for one of his elect, will it, will, will it ever fail? Will it ever fail so one of them will perish? Never. Never, 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 never. Because Christ our intercessor is pleading the blood of his sacrifice. You see, he's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's pleading his obedience at the righteousness of his people. He's pleading his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. And the father will always accept the blood of his son. Always. Because nobody knows better than the father that the blood of Christ paid the debt in full. See, our sin debt's owed to God, to his justice, right? Well, nobody but God. Nobody knows better than God, the father. That debt's been paid. The blood was enough to satisfy me. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 24. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, the writer here had been talking about all those priests after the order of Aaron. And boy, they went through a whole lot of religious ceremony, didn't they? All through the tabernacle, the temple, all the things that they had to do all the time, all the time, all the time. They offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Those priests offered millions of animal sacrifices that never saved not one single solitary person. Because it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. But then Christ came. A high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He offered one sacrifice for sin forever. And then he did something all those high priests never did. He sat down. Now just one sacrifice. And he sat down. You know why? Because one sacrifice is all it took to put away the sin of his people forever and that sacrifice saved all of his people to the uttermost fully completely perfectly saved and when christ makes intercession for his people that's the sacrifice that he pleads so you never have to worry if the intercession of christ will fail because his sacrifice will never fail he'll never fail 
So if he's for you in heaven, making intercession for you, you can never perish. Never. And that's good enough to live by. And that's good enough to take to your deathbed. If Christ is making intercession for you, you can never perish. All right, number four, look back at Hebrews chapter two. If the Lord is in heaven for you, you know what he's doing there? He's ruling there for you to guarantee your salvation. Hebrews chapter two, verse five. For under the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou shouldest visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. For a little while he made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste son for or taste death for every son. That word man should have been translated son. It means for the whole. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee and again I'll put my trust in him and again Behold, I am the children which God hath given me. Now the Father made his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be King of all. He bought that right by his sacrifice, by that one sacrifice for sin. That means that the Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign over everything. Everything. Everything you can think of. Every movement movement of every creature, every movement of anything in God's creation None of that could happen without the express permission of Christ our Savior. He's ruling over everything. And do you know why the Father did it that way? It's so that Christ, who died to save his people from their sin, would also be the king who sovereignly applies that salvation to the hearts of his people. The Father made his Son king of all. So in the end, The king can say, Father, here I am. And here is every one you ever gave me to save. I brought them all to you. Not one's missing. He can guarantee that because he's king over all. Nothing could ever take one of his people out of his hand. If Christ rules for you in heaven, now you take comfort in this. He's using that sovereign power over everything going on in creation. And there's so many things going on in creation that scares me half to death, that makes me worried. I so, oh, the older I get, the more I worry about what we're leaving to this, this next generation. What are we, what have we done? What? Now you take comfort. 
That is not happening out of control of our Father. No, He, he is working this. He's he purposed this to happen. He's using His sovereign power causing it to happen just the way it's happened. So that He can guarantee your salvation and bring you to glory. That's what He's using His sovereign power for. Even if we don't understand why He's doing what He's doing. I know this. That's what He's doing it for. I know it. To bring His people to be with Him eternally. All right, number five. If the Lord is in heaven for you, he has entered heaven for you as the forerunner. The Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews six, verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeable, unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who had fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is entered for us. Even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now believers often find themselves in need of comfort, don't we? And when you need comfort, what will truly comfort your soul? What will truly comfort your soul? Well, it's got to be something that's true. It's got to be something that can't change. It's not just a, it's not a lie. That can't comfort your soul. It's not mere sentiment saying, well, you know, it's all going to turn all right in the end. It's got to be something that's true. It's got to be something that can't change. Well, God swore to save his people by two unchangeable things. God's counsel and God's word. Those two things are unchangeable. I don't care how long this creation lasts. God's purpose and God's word are unchangeable. They'll never change. God's counsel, his purpose, his purpose to save his people from their sin, to glorify them together with his son, will never change. Because God can't change. You know, my purpose has changed from day to day because I change. You know, what's important to me today may not be all that important to me tomorrow. It may be real important for me to to clean out clutter and throw it away today, but it may not be tomorrow. I mean, you know, who knows? Who knows what's going to be with me? God never changes. So his purpose will never change. And God's word will never change. I'm telling you, the first time somebody says something to you about the Bible, well, that was the old days and that doesn't, you know, be done. Be done. God's word never changes. And he has promised in his word, I'm going to save my people by my grace. I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to redeem. I'm going to call them to myself that, that where I am, they may be forever. That word will never change. God's going to save his people. He's going to do it by his grace. He's going to do it by, by through faith that he's going to give him. And not one word of this book ever fall to the ground. Now you can trust 
your soul to the promise of God, to the purpose of God, and to his word. I don't care what happens in time. And I got no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen in the future. But whatever it is that happens, in the end, God's going to have all of his people with him in glory. Every last one of them is going to be redeemed. Every last one of them is going to be glorified together with Christ. And here's how I know that's true. When Christ died, he arose again from the grave. He rose again because the sin that was laid on him was gone. He couldn't stay dead because the sin that was laid on him is gone. It was all put away by what's pictured on this table. His broken body and his shed blood. And after he rose from the grave, about 40 days later, he ascended back to heaven. And when he got there, he was accepted of the Father. The Father said, now you sit down right here on my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool." The man Christ Jesus entered into glory and he was accepted on his merit. By his obedience, by the merit of his sacrifice. Now Christ is the forerunner. The forerunner. It doesn't say the only runner. It says the forerunner. The forerunner crossed the finish line. When he crossed the finish line, he opened the way to heaven for his people. And since Christ is the forerunner, you don't have to be right bright to figure this out. There's a whole lot of runners coming after him. All his people. And all those people, when they cross the finish line, when they finish this course, this race that God's given them, they're going to get there and be accepted on the basis of Christ's merit for the same reason that he was accepted. Now let that comfort your heart. Calm down about all the junk going on around us. You're not staying here forever. He's going to come get you. Very soon, you're going to follow the forerunner into glory. And you're going to see him face to face. All right, here's the last thing. Look at Revelation chapter 22. And this goes right along with the special that Tara and Sean sung for us. If the Lord's in heaven for you, he will be heaven for you. Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there should be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their forehead. Now heaven, as John saw it, is all about Christ. It's all about seeing him. It's all about being made just like him. Desi Maynard used to sing a song that I love. It's entitled Waiting for Him. I'm longing for Him. I'm longing to see Him. I'm longing to be with Him. I'm longing to be made just like Him. And the last line of that song goes like this. In one of these days, He's coming for me and all those bought at Calvary. Then forever, 
He will be heaven for me. He will be heaven for me. I'm telling you, we, you know, we, we refer to heaven as glory, don't we? Because it's, it's got to be glory beyond anything we can imagine. But you know why that place is glory? It's because Christ is there. I mean, what do you care about streets of gold and pearly gates and a big old mansion if Christ isn't there? One old writer said heaven would be the valley of weeping if Christ is not there. That's what Mephibosheth said to David. When David returned, he'd been on the run from, from Absalom and, and now he'd return home and Ziba had lied on old Mephibosheth and told told David, Mephibosheth didn't want to you know, come with you. He didn't want to be joined to you. He's, he's joined to, to Absalom. But now David had promised, he made, he made a, a promise to his friend Jonathan that he'd take care of Mephibosheth. So he got back and he thought, well, you know, Ziba's, he's been loyal to me. Mephibosheth hadn't. He said, Mephibosheth, all that I gave to you, now I'm giving half of it to old Ziba. Now Mephibosheth knew Ziba cheated him. He knew Ziba lied on him. But you know what Mephibosheth said? David, let him take it all. I don't care about any of that stuff. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. And that's what I say about the Savior. I'm sure the surroundings beyond our wildest imagination. That's not what I'm looking forward to. There's going to be folks there that we love and I miss seeing. I reckon I'll see him at some point. But that ain't who I'm looking for first. How about you? I want to see him. I want to be made just like him. Give me Christ or else I die. And when we get to glory, you know what we're going to see? John said we're going to see a lamb that had been slain. We're going to see the man, Christ Jesus, still bearing the scars that he received in his body when his body was broken and when his blood was shed to redeem his people from their sin. We're going to see him as he is. Now what are you going to say to that? Hasten Lord the day. Hasten Lord the day. And until that day, our Lord has told us to remember him We're remembering him. We're remembering how he redeemed us. We're remembering what we're going to see in glory someday. The lamb that had been slain by observing this table. So Wayne, you and me come and distribute the bread for us if you would.